friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. This week, we had great news that Visa finally demonetized this huge pornography site and thereby exposing a huge issue of child sexual exploitation on the internet. We catch up with Lena Nealin from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation about this important move and what it could mean for the victimization of so many in the pornography industry and even victims of human trafficking. But first, as the Biden administration is working overtime to push gender ideology across the nation and inside schools and in medicine, we have Monse Alvarado of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty with us to discuss a recent move to force hospitals across the nation to perform harmful transgender surgeries, even as the FDA has announced real issues with puberty blockers. Monse is here to set the record straight and discuss the great work Beckett is doing in not only protecting our youth, but also the conscience of so many in our medical community. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, Monse Alvarado. Thank you so much, Gracie. It's great to be here with you. I wanted to have you on because of the the transgender mandate from the Biden administration, yes. which is uh, never it, it, it's um, like a zombie. <laughs> Because it's been it's been rolling around half dead for for some time, but it, it keeps coming back to life and and coming back to threaten all of us in different ways. And I was hoping you could give our listeners some background history on the transgender mandate and and where we are right now. Yeah, sure, no problem. And you're completely right in describing it as the thing that keeps popping up. Um, and there's nothing that will make it go away away at least for for religious people. So back in the in 2016, in the under the Obama administration, one of the last things that they did is pass this transgender mandate. So they were looking for medical care for the transgender community specifically, and it mandates that every doctor and hospital has to provide uh, gender transition services. So that's surgeries, hormonal therapies, counseling, a whole slew of different um, types of medical care that needed to be provided for the transgender community. And it doesn't matter if you're medical opinion said that you don't think that it's healthy to give hysterectomies to young women or mastectomies to young women. Um, and of course, your faith perspective didn't matter either. So, um, Wait, And Monse, is that something yes. that according to this original mandate, nobody could opt out of for religious nobody reasons could opt out or of. clinical there was reasons? no religious exemption. That's exactly right. No and, religious and, exemption and no clinical exemption. And so, so, you're so it basically mandated, it mandated one course of action clinically for a very complicated psychological disease or disorder. Is that true? That's right. The, the reality is that, as you know, there is no standard of care uh, for gender transition and for gender dysphoria. And so you're talking about an area of medicine that is not settled in any way, where doctors have very differing opinions. You have detransitioners that come out every day saying that these surgeries and these procedures and these puberty blockers ruin their lives. And no one is addressing that. Instead, we're just coming out 2016, this is years ago now, uh, with a, a prescribed way of treating individuals that is not derived from medical background, but just mandated by the government. So and, and Monse, if I could add on that topic, is that in medicine, classically, Hippocratic medicine, we, we've all heard that phrase, first do no harm, but yes. how the way it has been applied classically is that you don't remove healthy organs and you don't mutilate what's working. Like So if something is working in your body, right, like if your pancreas is producing insulin, you don't, no surgeon would go in and remove remove part of your pancreas simply because you wanted it gone or you wanted to be a diabetic, for instance, right? Or, right. And then, of course, there's cosmetic surgeries where you do, I guess, in a way, mutilate things that are working fine, but you don't like the look of them. And But that's very much a cosmetic thing that's, that's uh, very separate and it belongs under cosmetic surgery. Most doctors don't participate in that. That's not their field. And mm -hmm. those are always elective things that people can choose to do. So I can choose to remove my large breasts and because I don't like to have large breasts, but that's a cosmetic choice. This transgender mandate in 2016 was trying to convert medicine into something that medicine hasn't classically been, which is Hippocratic, instead of being Hippocratic and first do no harm, saying, no, these are the only allowable treatments 
and they might include and they do include mutilation castration um, infertility things that make you infertile like things that that interfere and change the normal functioning wonderfully healthy human body okay i wanted to put that in because i think it's an important important backgrounder when we talk about medicine it's a it's a critical part of this discussion because the hippocratic oath is so important of course and goes back as you said it's it's part of the original kind of design for the way that we trust and why we trust our doctors right and why we trust their medical opinions because we know that they're trying to preserve our health right but the reality here is that you're also creating another layer in medical care which is defining parity in uh, services let me just explain what i mean by that mm-hmm. if a transgender person comes in and requests a hysterectomy because the individual would like to be a man then that hysterectomy is allowed by virtue of this mandate because you would perform a hysterectomy on a woman for if she had cancer so if you would perform these services on someone for any other reason, you also have to perform them if they're requesting them as part of a gender transition. On the logic that it's sex discrimination, right? Like you would That's do right. it you would do it for a woman who has uh, uterine cancer, for instance, you'd remove her uterus, but you wouldn't do it for a woman who would like to present as a man or believes that she's a man and just wants her uterus removed so she doesn't menstruate anymore, for instance. Right. Very different. And a lot of people don't realize the consequences of removing these organs and why it's such a painstaking decision to make when someone has cancer when and so why it would be so problematic to, to remove these organs from from healthy individuals well can i can but, i give you an analogy maybe that sure. tell me if you think this works so if i am if i'm i don't know out on the boat with my husband and i crush my my thumb <laughs> when we're docking the boat and that i go to the surgeon and the surgeon says i'm sorry this thumb has to come off and he could do amputate my thumb, right? Maybe it's it's right. not salvageable. In Under the transgender mandate, in, in a way, in an analogy, if a person simply didn't like their thumb and went to a surgeon and said, please remove my healthy thumb, the surgeon would have to be, uh, would have to remove the thumb because he removed the thumb that was crushed. Yes. Something like that, no? I mean, Something like without that. injecting exactly. sex into the equation, obviously. Right, exactly. That's the non-sex version of this. And okay. and I and the reality is that it's it's problematic, of course, for the reasons we've already described in terms of medical autonomy, but also the, the idea that you don't have settled science on this. And then the third piece is the religious freedom discussion. You can no longer have a point of view in medicine about men and women that matches your values. And and many communities, I think that as medical providers, obviously they're, they come in all you know forms and beliefs, but in the same way, the communities they serve come in all forms and beliefs. And the pioneers of medical beds that are you know non-governmental medical beds in this country are people of faith. And so we are we are putting in danger a system that has for a long time cared for one in seven Americans. And and that should perk everyone's ears up when you hear about this mandate. So anyway, well, that's that's the background of it. But the Obama administration obviously goes out. You have the Trump administration, which did not touch this mandate. And then the Biden administration came in and revived it. That is the kind of sequence of the regulatory side of this. So what was going on inside the government agency, Health and Human Services, on the transgender mandate, where it came from. Mm -hmm. However, there's also litigation. As always, you're talking to me, which means we've got lawyers involved. When the mandate came out from the Obama administration, we immediately, representing a network of hospitals called Franciscan Alliance and the University of Mary in North Dakota, which has a nursing program that receives federal funds, the nursing program and um, Franciscan Alliance, they sued the government saying, we cannot in good conscience provide these services in this way. We still treat LGBTQ people and people who identify as transgender and we love them as good Christians do, but we cannot provide these specific services in this way. And uh, we got an injunction, so a protection from the mandate that's temporary while the case continued in the courts from the Fifth Circuit out of Texas and the Eighth Circuit out of North Dakota. And this so, was when, Monse? What year was this? This was 2017. 2017. Well, it was an immediate injunction in 2016 and it carried into 2017, uh-huh. right? So 2016, 2017, you have the beginning, the kickoff of these cases. Under the Trump administration, because they ne- they didn't touch this rule, the cases just laid there. So the protection stayed. Uh-huh. And everyone kind of continued to go about their lives as if the transgender mandate didn't exist. And wait, and President Trump couldn't pull the mandate? That wasn't an of option? Of course he could have. He, he chose could have. not to. 
He chose not to, okay. Yeah, his HHS definitely could have done something. They chose not to touch this rule. And then we come into the Biden administration and they decide, okay, we're going to revive this and we are going to fight it in court. Mm. And if you look at all of the government documents around this, they immediately go back and cite this litigation as the thorn in their side. This is the reason that they can't just move forward with this important mandate. And so a new version of the mandate came out last month, and it also includes important care for the um, LGBTQ community. So it, it puts together transgender care with things like HIV, HIV treatments, which if I don't know how many people know their history of the HIV epidemic in D.C., but the religious sisters were on the front lines of caring for the, sure. the, the gay community at that moment. And so it's very hard to see something that is settled science, right, lumped in with something that is not settled science and asked to be just proliferated nilly-willy, right? So wait, explain, um, I'm sorry, Monse, they took the transgender mandate, they expanded it or they rewrote mm-hmm. it? What did they do exactly? They, they expanded it and they added in a couple of different things, including care for the for the gay community associated with HIV and a couple of other kind of layers of care. And so a piece of that is now the transgender mandate, this new, it's called Rule 1557. And so this new rule that has been released, it's not a final rule yet, was in court last week again. It gets really complicated. You have this ongoing rule and then this ongoing these ongoing cases that have all been alive for about five years and now five years later we're just waking up to them i think that that's something that we should all remember the government is always working the bureaucracy is always churning things out while you're sleeping and court cases led by very brave clients you know very brave religious sisters who just want to fulfill their mission and care for individuals and give them the medical care that they need pioneers in the medical industry are being harmed by the government's decision that faith does doesn't matter or that your religious exemption which is what this new rule does deserves to be considered, but it's going to get locked into the bureaucracy. You don't get it right away. You have to apply for it and then someone has to evaluate it, which basically means that somebody is going to be evaluating your faith every single time you have an issue that is crystal clear. There's no person in the United States that doesn't believe that the Catholic Church thinks that there are males and females. And when when you talk about uh, asking for an exemption, you know, it makes more sense when you're talking about a hospital system with a, you know, a cadre of lawyers who work for them. But what about practitioners, just small practitioners in small practices? How The rule applies the same. Small practice, because it's about every instance, every single time you don't want to or you don't believe that you can perform this procedure, you have to ask for your exemption. So it's case by case. It's not a blanket exemption. Oh, it's case by case. So my, yeah. so my OBGYN, my, I, I go to these OBGYNs that are Catholic, all of them. I know they would never remove a uterus that was healthy. I mean, I know most of them fairly well, and, and I can't imagine them just removing a uterus um, just because. Every single time a woman came to them and said, take out my uterus because I want to be a man, they they would have to ask for an exemption. That's right. Every single time. That's right. Amazing. That's there. There is no doctor in the world who has that kind of time on his hands <laughs> that he can do that. I agree with you. I mean, I think we're seeing the end of private practice as we know it in this country, which is, I, I know, a different discussion. And as you well know, both in dealing with medical malpractice insurance and just keeping up with your records for your for the people that you care for as a doctor, as well as dealing with insurance claims, all of that is enough for a doctor to have to deal with, to, to be able to provide good care. So this just adds another layer. And the the crazy part is that last week, the Biden administration didn't only argue that the mandate is something they wanted to pursue, that they want everybody to be a part of. They also argued that we don't need the protection that is right now stopping the government from enforcing this mandate on religious people because their new scheme of evaluating your religion is so good. And, and the reality is what they really want is they just want to be free to go after all of the medical doctors and all of the medical providers that want that that need this exemption. I think that there's they believe that you can divorce your religion from from your everyday work. And that's absolutely impossible. You can't because and, it is and even if you could divorce your religion, you can't divorce your clinical judgment. That is the second piece that I think is so critical here. You've got these twin realities of, of course, what you believe about the human person, but even as a professional, what you know is right because of the formation that you've been given in medical school and what, and, and what you know clinically, as you were saying, is correct. And I think we always forget because we want to think about marginalized communities or communities that we don't think get enough attention. Um, I think we forget that the influence of faith in the past couple of years has shown us something beautiful. During COVID, Samaritan's Purse went out and created all kinds of 
treatment centers and care centers in New York when the governor there was failing horribly to care for people who were scared mm-hmm. and in need. I remember. Yeah. And so th- the faith impulse does wonderful things in this country. And we're, we're going to rip it out because we're unhappy with an unsettled area of medical practice. Mm. I don't think that that's where we should be starting. So Monse, these days, what I, I am seeing and I'm very hopeful about is that in many countries and in Florida, <laughs> we are pulling away from doing these affirmation treatments on children. Our experience as clinicians has been that when um, these poor children with gender dysphoria are affirmed, their dysphoric feelings, their feelings of unhappiness don't go away. In fact, they get worse because now they're dealing with terrible medical problems. They're sexually dysfunctional. Sometimes they're incontinent. They can't have good relationships anymore. I mean, they're infertile. I mean, they've wrecked their lives basically as children and people have wrecked those lives for them, the clinicians that treated them like that. So in many countries, the you know clinicians are saying, no, we won't do these things to children because we're not getting good results and they're too young to consent. So on that note, and Florida, we're doing the same thing. We're in process of doing that. On that note, how does the transgender mandate apply to children or does it not even mention that fact? It does mention minors, but it leaves it very vague. And the reality is that from what we saw in the original version of the mandate, it did include children without parental consent for hormonal therapies hmm. and, and gender affirming counseling. And so those are all things that no one had, again, because there is no no standard of care here. We don't actually know what we're talking about. Everyone's kind of just experimenting, which is very scary. Mm-hmm. As you were mentioning, some of these horrible results of the permanent impact on children and decisions that they did not get to make, that their parents made for them or that some school nurse made for and them. And sometimes after an hour or two of evaluation for children who right. have other problems, they're not just gender dysphoric, they might be autistic, maybe they've had depression or anxiety for years and after an hour or two of evaluation. Or suffering from the trauma of abuse. Yeah, 100%. yeah. a lot there of is, children that suffer from that. There are a lot of factors. Right. And and because the medical community hasn't come around and and it's, I think, not fashionable to look at this with the facts. Everyone is kind of interested in in pursuing a path. Also a lot of money in this, uh, Monse. There's a, you know, the gender industrial complex is enormous. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And when you when you don't affirm uh, wherever you're at in the process, if you're a psychologist or a, or a psychiatrist or an endocrinologist or whatever you are, you're opting out of a very lucrative uh, field and, and putting yourself in danger from being canceled. Yes, that's that's very true. And I think that, that we're going to see more and more and more of that as this continues to be part of the debate and kind of come to the light. It's over, like I mentioned, over the past five years of this litigation, a lot of people weren't really paying attention to it. And for some reason right now, we're in a moment when people are actually willing to have the discussion. And the wake-up call really needs to be for doctors. Of course, the government needs to wake up to the religious exemption issue here. But if you really care about people who suffer from gender dysphoria, you want them to have medical care that treats them as people. And that's what we're missing here. You're, you, every other stakeholder has their hand in this discussion, except people who are interested in the future and the long, you know, the long, long lives these people are going to live. Not this moment right now in time where a change seems to be what will keep them from suicide, etc. All of the studies that are looking at long term following of people who have transitioned or detransitioned have very differing opinions on whether they will actually have issues with depression, suicide, etc. Susceptible to suicide. So I think that the hearts, if you think about it from a charitable perspective, People's hearts are in the right place. Some people's hearts are in the right place. And I think that we can all agree that we want to care for people, but we can't jump with policy ahead of science, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, from the medical perspective, I'm a radiologist, so I I don't make decisions. I don't make clinical decisions for patients. I just look at um, their images that other doctors order. Other, you know, other doctors order studies and I evaluate the studies themselves. One problem that, that is cropping up now for me, and I think it's a problem for the patient, not so much for me, we're getting into gray areas of what the patient's sex is because the patient, mm-hmm. um, and this is an issue that I'm sure people who think about passports and people coming in out of the country and the TSA and safety at the uh, jails, all these things like, what is your sex? Um, from the medical perspective, I need to know a patient's sex. I don't need to know what they wish they were or what they would like to be or how they like to present socially or how they feel themselves as a sexual being. I need to know, are you a man or a woman? Because 
that completely changes what I'm going to see in your study. So if if you are a, you're a woman and doesn't matter how many hormonal alterations or surgical alterations you have, you're going to have a certain pattern of disease and certain diseases are going to be more prevalent for you and more possible. And I need mm-hmm. to know that. And guess what? Nowadays, I don't sometimes I'm not told. One of the most important, the most important thing you can tell me about yourself when I'm when I'm evaluating your study is your age and then your sex. Those are just as each of those two are just as important because it tells me which diseases and which conditions you're more you're more susceptible to. So this is a this is a minor thing I think um, in comparison with all the other stuff we're talking about. But I wanted to bring it up because people aren't considering how it disturbs the medical profession. And everyone interacts with the medical profession. Nobody is so healthy that they're not going to end up in a hospital one day or with some some disorder at the doctor's office. Right. And then you have kind of dueling record about people, how they present versus, as some people like to say, what they were assigned at birth. It's so confusing. And I, I cannot, my heart goes out to all of the doctors who are trying to figure out how to care for patients and how to exactly do what you're doing, which is, I was taught something about, you know, the den- the bone density of men versus women, the structure of the body of men versus women, so that I could adequately care for someone. How do I then do my job? If I open a CT on somebody and they have little spots all over their bones, I need to know, is that breast, is that breast cancer or prostate cancer? <laughs> It's not an it's not an uh, a, a a trivial question. I mean, this could make the difference for the patient a tremendous difference in their care. You know, and eventually maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. But how terrible that we're caught in these snares because of you know things like a transgender mandate, which I'm sure has will mandate that people use exactly the sex that they declare and not the sex that they are. Well, that's already what it mandates, right? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you from a religious perspective. I'm going to be devil's advocate. Say Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they they build a hospital. And, you know, they don't believe in transfusions. You're, maybe you didn't know that, but that they don't believe in transfusions. Why is that different? Why, the government will say, listen, if you want to have a hospital, you got to do transfusions. You can't have a hospital where somebody's bleeding out and you're not going to transfuse them. How is that different from the religious exemptions that we're talking about in transgender um, affirming treatments? Uh, because the difference is it's life-saving care. And that, I use that phrase very carefully because... Because people who suffer from gender dysphoria or want to present as the the opposite sex or a different sex than the one that they are, um, they are susceptible to suicide. And so people Uh want to say that that's life-saving care. Again, the studies are not finished or have yet to be actually even launched, I think, on that issue. Um, But for a transfusion, obviously, the government has an interest, your parents, your family has an interest in making sure that you can get the best of the medical advances that we have to offer that are going to give you the care you need. And so there's a government interest in that. That's a very different kind of Mm -hmm. story than new, different, controversial medical care mandated by the government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, how long have we had blood transfusions, Gracie? No, no, that makes sense. I'm glad that you drew that distinction. So then the other side would say, well, if if I'm suicidal and I need to have my uterus removed, then it'll make me less suicidal than you're saving my life. But, But, you know, the correct answer to that is, well removing your uterus won't actually make you less suicidal. We have studies that show that suicidal ideations do not, in fact, decrease. Uh, after after these things, after these sur- surgeries and hormonal treatments, at least not not statistically significant in a statistic- statistically significant way. Um, but and they might be giving you something else. You might end up diabetic or with cancer, or you don't know the impact mm-hmm. on that specific person and their body composition of removing an organ. Mm-hmm. Your body is not a just a compilation of things it's a fully functioning ecosystem yeah exactly you know an interesting study came out or i think it was like a a meta-analysis of many studies over the last years that estrogen cessation um, leads to lower cognition lack of cognition and even might lead to uh, higher incidence of alzheimer's disease um, in women so for instance a girl who at 15 starts taking um, estrogen suppression drugs and then testosterone, she, it might be making her more susceptible to Alzheimer's, which is a scourge. It's a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing, right? All of that. And yeah. these are, and these are Again, things we, all- we, are, we don't know. These are experimental things. And that's and that's the reality is we, we don't know what we don't know. The discussion isn't being had. And at least for people 
who are religious and who are interested in making sure that the care that they give their patients aligns with their values but all, and the values of their patients who are coming to them, of course, and also allows them to bring in their full expertise, because that's also what you're called to as a religious person is to give the best care possible because that person is made in the image of God. Uh If those two twin realities can't happen, then where are we going with this? Right. Uh So that's that's something to watch. We should get a decision in the next couple of weeks. um, Is this this something that could go up to the Supreme Court? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think this is a fight that, again, it's five years in the making and it's one that it's not a conversation stopper. It's a conversation opener Mm -hmm. about what we do uh, for medical conscience rights in the future of this country as we continue to see uh, the government taking positions on science um, before the discussions are being had about what the science is supposed to be. Well, and we have other important things coming up, right? Or or they are up in states, uh, suicide, assisted suicide, euthanasia is only around around the corner, right? Uh, Yes, I mean... That's all. It's already legal in 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 a couple of states in the United States. Obviously, we know it's legal in Canada. It's being considered in Mexico. So the assisted suicide discussion is one that's at the forefront of it's at our door. It's at our door. Uh, Thank you. uh, Thank you, Monse, for giving us this wonderful uh, rundown of this that, that should concern every single one of us whether we know people who are suffering from gender dysphoria or we don't, or we're just patients that want to make sure that our doctors and our hospitals are acting in our best interests and not in in a faddish way as assigned by the government. So thank you, Monse. And where can our listeners learn more about the cases um, the wonderful of the wonderful people at Beckett? Well, you can always come to our website at beckettlaw.org. That's Beckett with one T. Uh, BeckettLaw.org, and you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, wherever you can find a social media profile, we're there. Thank you. Thank you, Monse. Thank you so much. with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and on with us now is our next guest. Her name is Lena Nealon. She's the Director of Corporate and Strategic Initiatives for the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, and she's coming on with us to discuss a really important uh, change in the the, uh, landscape of sexual exploitation of children, thank God, in the United States. So welcome to the show, Lena. So good to be here with you. Well, Lena, um, I could give our listeners sort of a thumbprint version of it, but why don't I let you do it? Tell us uh, what's been going on um, in this this uh, big uh, event, which is uh, just actually developed over the last couple of days. Sure. So Pornhub, which is um, one of the largest pornography companies in the world, has really been coming under fire in the past two years for hosting child sex abuse materials, sex trafficking, trafficking videos, rape videos, not just depicted, but actual videos. And several brave survivors came forward. Um, there was an expose in the New York Times that uh, really elevated these survivor stories. And one of the very happy consequences of that was that major credit card companies, so Visa and MasterCard in particular, pulled their, um, cut their ties with Pornhub. Now, what happened after that is that Pornhub took down 80% of their videos. <laughs> now, now, fast forward a bit, several survivors have brought lawsuits against Pornhub and their parent company, MindGeek. There's about eight lawsuits right now. The National Center on Sexual Exploitation actually filed the first one. But just a few days ago, a federal judge ruled that Visa, which was part of one of those lawsuits, could not be dismissed from the case. And they said that this young survivor who had her abuse videos shown on Pornhub at age 13, that Visa should have known and that there was enough um, evidence for Visa to know that they were helping monetize child sex abuse material. So this is huge, um, this ruling, it, because basically it's telling Visa that you 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 were part of this, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the court case is going to go over. 
or continue on. And it's not all. Once this judge's ruling came out, Visa and MasterCard also pulled their support from uh, MindGeek's advertising arm. So what does that mean? MindGeek not only owns Pornhub and several hundred pornography sites, they also have an advertising arm. So um, companies can go through this advertising arm, Traffic Junkie, buy advertisements that then play on these pornography sites. So, and it makes up 50% of Visa's revenue. So basically, they are really hitting um, at the core of the pornography industry. And now with this ruling, it's showing financial services that they're also could be taken to account for their role in buttressing this exploitative industry. Lena, give us a little sketch of of this poor girl who who the suit uh, who brought the suit that's at, that that's in question. One of these suits. Give us yes. a little history of of the, her terrible treatment at the hands of of MindGeek and Pornhub. So Serena uh, Flates, she um, was a young girl in a very like remote, uh, remote small town. I believe she was homeschooled for many years and then started school with very little knowledge of just even internet technology or relationships. She describes herself as being, you know, quite shy and introverted. Um, and a young man started showing her attention in school and um, they started then, you know, he asked for uh, nude images, which unfortunately is becoming very normalized um, among teenagers as young as uh, 11, 12. I have a daughter who just finished sixth grade and she says that sharing nudes is, is very normalized. So this oh. young girl, again, didn't know exactly what was, you know, just thinking that she's sharing um, sharing photos with this boy who's uh, showing her interest online. I should, I should add that it was all, all online. And then found out um, because she started being bullied at school that her images had been uploaded to Pornhub. And she is, and many other survivors, when they would notify Pornhub that their images were there, they would by and large be ignored. Um, you know, they were told that it's not in violation. They try to show you know, IDs that they are underage. Um, and Pornhub, you know, either it takes a very long time and in some cases, even months to address it, because they know that as long as those videos are up, they're going to continue getting a lot of hits. And what that means for them is a lot of money. And meanwhile, so, as long as the videos are up, they're being downloaded and reproduced and re-uploaded, right? I mean, it's just sort of like an endless loop that can go on and on. Once they're there, they're they're out there, right? So even once they're up, like as you said, they can be downloaded. And that's one of the things that we've been fighting for to stop even allowing downloads of these videos. Um, they're posted and reposted elsewhere. So even if it's taken down Pornhub, they could be ending up, you know, in many other other places. So this Serena Flates came out and she was the main survivor. I really encourage people to read the article by Nick Kristoff in the New York Times that came out December 4th because it gives such a, um, a chilling picture of not only what Serena went through, but so, what so many other um, young survivors have gone I mean, through. Es essentially, her life was destroyed, correct? It was destroyed. And, um, you know, she tried to escape the pain through drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, it's it's the this image. A lot of survivors tell us that the trauma of having images like this online or having, you know, we hear from child sex abuse survivors that have their material posted, that sometimes it's even worse than the trauma itself because it's ongoing and they never know who's watching it when they feel like they can't even go outside of their homes often. Oh my God. Um, they are a lot of times people will actually put the um, addresses and phone numbers and social media accounts of those in these videos so that others could also attack them and go after them. It is so insidious. And again, these P Pornhub and these other pornography companies um, are, are profiting from this and they know it's going on and by and large have been held unaccountable. So these lawsuits, we hope, will really shift, really hold them accountable. And again, the mainstream corporations that are buttressing this, Visa, MasterCard, you know, they're the ones that allow, they build up that infrastructure of these pornography companies. So we've 
The National Center on Sexual Exploitation has also really prioritized going after these the mainstream corporations that you and I both use, right? Mm-hmm. We, everyone has a Visa card. Everyone has a MasterCard. Um, so we have the ability also to push on them as customers, as shareholders to say, we don't want to be using your product if you continue to prop up this industry that has large evidence of being largely criminal um, and you know, even with all of this evidence against them, continue to operate as they have been. When I was reading up uh, to, in preparation for this interview, I read that MindGeek owns Pornhub and other porn sites, which garner over 150 million daily visitors. And I don't know why that number just, it struck me as beyond horrendous that there are that many people across the world just daily visiting these these sites that are full of underage children being uh, exploited boys and girls but also just Mm -hmm. people exploiting each other in the most degraded ways many of them i'm sure even though they might be adult uh, are being trafficked and and people women and men who are you know i mean just being used um in in ways that just make me shudder yeah to just put it in perspective there have been that number of how many how many hits these porn companies got that's more than google amazon and facebook combined on a daily basis so what is this doing to our society what are these companies that visa monetizes and mastercard monetizes and all these that we participate like as you say that we participate in even though you and i may never have any intention or have ever gone on a porn site what is this doing to our society that it's this this kind of pornography dissemination? Oh my gosh, so much. Well, the good news the good news I want to share is I think that there is growing recognition of mm-hmm. really what pornography is and and our the pornography that's right now, right? This is not your your uncle's playboy that yeah. was <laughs> under the bed, you know, which was bad enough, right? Objectifying yes. women and this is hardcore, violent, racist. I mean, you heard I was saying rape-themed pornography is a very popular pornography form. Racist-themed and not, you know, George Floyd murder-themed pornography. This is what at, in everybody, the palm of people's hands in their smartphones mm-hmm. is available. Not only that, but everybody with a smartphone is a potential pornography producer. It is so easy to take images or images that maybe someone thinks is, you know, with their you know, intimate partner, even, the, you know, their husband. Or again, I said, it's being very normalized. So it's so easy to upload. Now, what what I think people are starting to realize what the violence that is um, perpetrated on those in pornography, um, understanding that what they might be watching is not just depicted rape or depicted sex trafficking or depicted child sex abuse that is actual videos of this type of harmful behavior. I think there's a much much better understanding of even what watching pornography does, not only to relationships and health and well-being, but even physically, it's harder for men to perform if they're watching a lot of pornography. So I actually am hopeful in seeing these changes. We're seeing the pornography empires crumble, um, especially in the past six months. I'm optimistic that there is going to switch. We are going to see a switch in society because of this, um, again, snowballing effect of, you know, physically what's happening to people, greater understanding just because of, um, you know, these new stories coming out and the science behind what pornography use does to people um, because, the evidence is stunning in terms of, you know, lowering, again, mental health, uh, worsening relationships um, for adolescents who watch pornography, the risks associated with harmful uh, sexual behaviors and even lower education levels. Um, I think we're reaching a boiling point. And these suits that are advancing against uh, MindGeek and, 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 and Pornhub and Visa and all those companies, is, is the criminal activity that's alleged, is, uh, is it all based uh, on um, minors or are there other, th- other criminal activities that are, that are uh, alleged in these suits? Um, there are other criminal activities, not just of minors, but for example, um, there was a popular case, Girls Do Porn. They were 
women older than 18 um, or girls over 18, but they were, you know, technically adults. And the uh, producers have been charged with sex trafficking. So I know there are similar suits going on right now. Um, another one against Pornhub that is um, adult women that had a similar situation that they were filmed uh, without their consent while they were um, showering, I believe, in a during like a sports event, you know, and they were at a, at another school. Um, they were uh, videotaped in the locker rooms, and that abuse was also uploaded um, to Pornhub. So that's one of the cases that the National Center on Sexual Exploitation um, is undertaking now. So it isn't just children, you know, adults, of course, are also being sadly abused and taken advantage of. So basically, no one is safe, even <laughs> from a spy cam, right? And you sadly, no one is on safe. One of these sites. And we're seeing a lot uh, arise in this crime that is not new, but it's accelerating. And we finally have a name for it. We're calling it image-based sexual abuse. And oh. this is what I was describing a bit earlier, where um, you may be sending images to your partner. Um, some people call it revenge pornography, right? Where then those images are taken or stolen. You know, someone accesses your photos, they're stolen, they're uploaded to the internet. Um, onto pornography sites or they're taken off of social media and uploaded to pornography sites. And this is a growing crime that we're seeing. Um, another one is even taking, for you know, someone taking your image off of the, um, off of the internet and creating what's called deep fake pornography. Mm -hmm. So someone could take my image. There's actually apps that you can use to then create pornography with someone's face on it. And our laws have not caught up to this uh, new form of crime. So, or not new form of crime, but growing form of crime. So image-based sexual abuse is something else that we really um, need to tackle. And you'll probably be hearing more about uh, you know, as time goes on, unfortunately. Well, the, the inventiveness of uh, the, the human mind when it comes to depravity is just endless, isn't it? It's true. And unfortunately, technology has always been very interlinked with um, you know, the pornography industry and sexual abuse and exploitation. Um, it's, it's true that depravity sometimes are endless, but also as I think <laughs> is our creativity. <laughs> and I think, you know, we need to be able to use these platforms and the technologies in order to combat these abuses. It's a matter of will of a lot of these corporations and, and tech companies. And I think we need, as a public, need to continue to push and push for that creativity to, you know, again, fight against these crimes and, and make the internet as safe as possible because it really is still the wild west. And with, with all the bad news that we talked about, we still should celebrate that this week uh, Visa has completely pulled out of MindGeek, of monetizing MindGeek, and that hopefully uh, going forward with this, as this way, as this suits, as these, as these suits go forward, we may get better and better um, control over these, these terrible purveyors of, of filth. So thank you, Lena Nealon. Tell us where um, our listeners can learn more about your organization. Yes, please visit endsexualexploitation.org. They can learn about the lawsuits that we have brought against Pornhub, as well as Twitter and our Law Center page. You can also go to the Corporate Advocacy page. I really encourage your listeners to take action. Um, in 30 seconds or less, you can email Visa and encourage them to cut ties completely with MindGeek, as well as with MindGeek's competitors, Xvideos and XHamster, who've also had cases brought against them with alleged uh, child sex abuse and sex trafficking. These companies really need to hear from us and it does make a difference when they hear from their customers saying, please cut ties. Um, we've seen some positive movement with MasterCard due to you know, public, the public uh, pushing on them. So again, nsexualexploitation.org, a lot of great resources and ways that anybody can take action. And I believe you know, we, we all need to, we all need to uh, make our voices known. Well, thank you, Lena. I'm going to do that right now, and I hope that our, um, all our listeners will also. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and raising attention to these issues. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. As Jesus tells us emphatically in the Gospel, why you left heaven, became man, 
lived, preached, suffered, was murdered, rose, and ascended. It's something every Catholic needs to ponder deeply, prayerfully, and frequently. I have come to set the earth on fire, Jesus says, and how I wish it were already blazing. Just like the Holy Spirit was sent down as tongues of fire to ignite the members of the early church with the passion to live and preach the gospel until the ends of the earth, Jesus came down with the same holy ardor, with the same white-hot love, to make us his torchbearers and set the world ablaze with the light of his truth and the fire of his mercy. He wants to do in us what happens symbolically at our baptism and is renewed every year at the Easter Vigil, when Jesus, like the flame of the Paschal candle, comes to light us, symbolized by a taper or baptismal candle, on fire with true Christian combustion and make us living tapers who receive the flame of faith from him and then pass on that passion to those around us. Ten years ago, Pope Benedict, commenting on Jesus' words from this Sunday's Gospel, spoke about the fire of faith and how important it is for each of us to allow the Holy Spirit to melt whatever in us is cold or frozen. In doing so, he pointed out the greatest danger for us as Christian disciples and the biggest obstacle to our proclaiming the faith and proclaiming and bringing people to Christ. There's a passion of ours, Pope Benedict said, that must grow from faith, which must be transformed into the fire of charity. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Origen, the great third century theologian, has conveyed a word of the Lord. Whoever is near me is near the fire. Therefore, the Christian must not be lukewarm. The book of Revelation tells us that this is the greatest danger for a Christian. Not that he may say no, but that he may say a very lukewarm yes. This being lukewarm is what discredits Christianity. Faith must become in us a flame of love, a flame that really lights up my being, that becomes the passion of my being, and so fires up also my neighbor. It's crucial for us to understand what Pope Benedict underlined. First, to be near Christ, he said, is to be near the fire. If we're truly drawing close to Christ in prayer and the sacraments of the Eucharist and confession, in charity toward others, in the communion that's the church, then we can't help but get fired up. The problem is that we often try to draw near to God with his bestest around our heart. We say our prayers but rush through them without love. We show up for Mass but leave our enthusiasm at home. We should be more passionate about God speaking to us and feeding us at Mass than the biggest baseball fans rejoice to be at their home park for the World Series. The fact that few of us behave this way in God's presence is a sign of tepidity. Second, Pope Benedict said that lukewarmness is the greatest danger for a Christian, that in response to God and the gift of his love, we give only a half-hearted yes with a shrug of our shoulders. In the book of Revelation, Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, which many commentators have said seems to be much in common with the United States today, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold, would that you were cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Then Jesus said, Why? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich, and white garments to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. We'll return to an explanation of Jesus' words in a second, but before we do I want to point out the third thing Pope Benedict mentions. Our Pope Emeritus says that the lack of fire is what discredits Christianity more than anything else. It's like a contagious cold of the faith that we pass on to others. People expect the Catholic clergy, religious and faithful, will take the faith seriously and passionately love God neighbor. They expect that Catholics who profess that sacred scripture is God's holy word will hunger to know that word inside out. They anticipate that Catholics who proclaim that Jesus Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist will never place something else on Sunday above God. They anticipate that Catholics who believe in the importance of all seven sacraments will take confession seriously and go regularly, take confirmation seriously and not delay it, take marriage seriously and not live as others do, take the sacrament of holy orders seriously and promote vocation, take the anointing of the sick seriously and call the priest whenever they or others get in danger of death. They expect that Catholics will go way beyond the call of duty to cross the road and care for others as good Samaritans. When non-Catholics or when Catholic kids encounter lukewarm Catholics, 
they easily lose respect for church teaching and for Catholics in general. We need to confront why Catholics become lukewarm. Very few of us are lukewarm on the day of our First Communion, just like very few priests are tepid on the day of their ordination. Something, however, happens to us. We lose the fire we once had. We lose our passion. We can specify three reasons why Catholics become tepid in our prayer, sacramental life, charity, and whole Christian existence. Jesus gave us the first reason, the passage from the book of Revelation, we considered a little earlier. We lose the sense that we really need God in our life, or need Him very much. Jesus tells the church in Laodicea, You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. And we begin to prioritize our relationship with mammon rather than God. Materialism, what Pope Francis calls spiritual worldliness, makes us lukewarm. The second reason why many of us are resistant to allowing Jesus to light us on fire is because we're afraid that if we draw too close to him, who is the fire of the Father's love, we'll lose something essential about who we really are. The fire of God, Pope Benedict said, is a flame that burns but doesn't destroy, that in burning brings forth the better and truer part of man. Nevertheless, it causes a transformation and must for this reason consume something in man, the waste that corrupts him and hinders his relationship with God and neighbor. This effect of the divine fire frightens us. We're afraid of being burned. We prefer to stay just as we are. There is, in the fear of giving up something nice to which we are attached, the fear that following Christ deprives us of freedom or of certain experiences or a part of ourselves. On the one hand, we want to be with Jesus, follow him closely. And on the other hand, we're afraid of the consequences that this brings with it. The third reason is because we're afraid of what others will do or say if we really live the faith with fire. The gospel this Sunday, right after telling us that he has come to light us and the whole world on fire, Jesus says that because of him, families will be divided, two against three, in various ways. This is not because Jesus came to bring division, but because when some in a family put him first, to love him above other loves and to treat him as God, others who want to be first, who want to be in God's place, get jealous. And it's that pride and envy that sever the bond. Lukewarm Christians hate when someone converts and really gets lit on fire because that exposes everyone else's stupidity. When the temperature of a family member's or fellow parishioner's faith increases, when a new priest arrives and starts confronting lukewarmness in its various disguises, many people will start to complain and some will even leave because they prefer a place that allows them to continue to stay the same rather than challenges them to become good Samaritans, good shepherds, and the saints God wants them to be. Pope Benedict, however, encourages all of us in these circumstances. He says, we must know how to recognize that losing something, indeed losing ourselves for the true God, the God of love and of life, is in reality gaining ourselves, finding ourselves more fully. So it's worthwhile to let ourselves be touched by the fire of God. The suffering that it causes is necessary for a transformation. It's the reality of the cross. It is not for nothing that in the language of Jesus, fire is above all a representation of the cross without which Christianity doesn't exist. The greatest way God has established to inflame us is at Mass. As Origen said, whoever draws near Christ draws near the fire. Whenever we receive Holy Communion, we ingest the one who said, I've come to set the earth on fire. Christ has come to ignite that fire and how he wants each of us to become truly enkindled. St. Catherine of Siena used to say in the 1300s, If you are what you should be, you will set the whole world ablaze. Mass is the place where Christ helps us to become whom we should be. As we prepare to receive him this Sunday, we beg him to help us to be enveloped by fire, always to burn with love to his glory, and to bring that flame of faith out to warm others, and to fill our families, our cities, and our towns, our neighborhoods and workplaces, our parishes, and the whole world with the fire of God's amazing love. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 